This podcast is a production of the Johns Hopkins University Press. To learn more, please visit press.jhu.edu slash journals. Thank you for tuning in to this Johns Hopkins University Press podcast. My name is Brian Shea, and I am the Public Relations and Advertising Manager in the Journals Division. Since 1938, the College English Association has served academics who seek to keep teaching college students as the proper focus of the profession. Its official publication, the CEA Critic, recently published a double issue commemorating its 80th anniversary with content from the history of the journal. Editor Jerry Craver joined us for a lively conversation about the double issue and the journal's importance in the field. Thanks for joining me today, Jerry. Tell me, as the editor of the journal, what does this milestone mean to you? Well, as the editor, it's an obligation because the journal has been appearing continuously since 1939. So that's, I think, a pretty significant accomplishment in this day of defunct and digital journals. So there's this pressure to represent what's been going on with the journal for the past 80 years. So that milestone means a lot in this in this current environment. But I'm also someone who joined the organization as a graduate student in the late 1980s, and it's been part of my academic world. So the, the folks who serve as officers, both now and in the past, and the people who attend, they're part of a, of a larger family, even if we only get together once a year at our annual conference. We're all committed to a particular type of teaching and learning. So I felt an obligation to make something extraordinary for them. And this 80th year really does matter. I don't know how many journals have been around longer than that and published continuously, whether it's through World War II or through Vietnam. But it seems to me that that's a significant accomplishment. And it, and it was a place where so many important voices published that I had no clue about. Right. So I feel, I feel honored and I feel a huge sense of obligation now that I didn't feel before I did this. Now, you put together this double issue. Uh, How hard was that to put 80 years into one piece of matter, I guess is the best way to put it. It's been a labor of love. My husband, who is also a part of CEA and an academic, kept saying, this might be the best thing you've ever done, which was semi- uh, reassuring and semi like great. What was all that other stuff I could do for the last twenty years? But the hardest part was the first ten years are only on microfilm. Finding a microfilm reader, number one, isn't always that easy. Mm-hmm. And then spending hours in front of it and and getting mastering the movement of fast and slow. That was the hardest part. Then discovering that on the pages of the journal, before I was even a member of the organization, we had Pearl Buck and Willa Cather and Cleonce Brooks and Philip K. Dick and Margaret Atwood. And I'm thinking, how do I select from those voices, but also give representation to the other scholars who might not be as famous, but whose work matters? Mm -hmm. So balancing that was really a challenge. I also felt like I wanted to crow about all those famous people, but I wanted to capture the eight decades in a way that spoke to readers now mm-hmm. so that it wasn't these sort of esoteric pieces. And that was one of the fascinating things, how many of the articles that had relevance to now. For example, we've been talking about teaching composition on the pages of the critic since 1939. 
even though comp ret as a serious discipline did not emerge until the middle of the last century. And uh, we've been publishing about brain-based research three decades before it started showing up more, more generally in other journals. So I got to see moments where we were being proleptic, maybe, in, in preparing for what was coming down the road, but also where there's a tradition that I wanted to honor. So it was balancing, and I, I just started going through each issue and listing articles I think would work and then culling that list down. But it was, it was challenging, and it was wonderful at the same time. As an academic, what, what did you kind of add to your knowledge from going through the actual article? Well, I learned a couple of interesting things. Like once upon a time, you can get a room in a Chicago hotel for five bucks or a <laughs> dinner at our nose for $2. <laughs> I learned those kinds of things. I also learned that for a while we had a kind of, I call it in my introduction, an academic tinder because people, there were like help wanted ads showing up or, you know, professor looking for a job. So I learned a little bit about the fact that the job market has always been pretty challenging. But I also learned about the consistency of ideas. What makes for good teaching in 1940 made for good teaching in 2010. And the honoring of people who teach in two-year colleges alongside four-year colleges, that's an important transition that students make. Uh, the idea that the, the, the CEA started when a bunch of rogue scholars broke off from MLA, the mothership, because they felt that the scholar-teacher model needed to be upended. It should be teacher-scholar. Mm. And so, so much of what I see on the pages from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, up until today, I see teachers whose scholarship informs their teaching and whose teaching informs their scholarship. And that just seems to be consistent. This valuing of literature as a means of looking at the world and teaching students to look at the world. And, and that was, um, that's been really meaningful to me. But even how we approach writing, the idea of clarity and attention to our reader that matters, that's, that's something that has been consistent throughout the journal as well. How important is CEA and the journal in today's academic world, there's there's so many pressures of how academics are perceived and affordability of college and what it means. So how important is it to have this thing that's been around for so long still thriving? Well, I'm going to answer that, but first I'm going to say something sort of going backwards a little bit, okay. which is, you know, in looking at some of this, there were a couple of moments about which I'm less proud. Oh, okay. And this goes to your question about how academics are perceived. For a long time, it was a lot of dead white men. I mean, you know, the, the typical canon comment. Um, and it reflected that. I think it, it, it did not do well listening to marginalized voices. And I think it got better at the same time that the, the academia got better at attending to marginalized voices. And I sort of hoped we would have done that sooner. But in, in the 1940s, there was a moment where the, the editors of, of the, the officers of the, of the CEA contacted their compatriots in Britain to see what they could do to help because Britain was in the middle of uh, the early stages of World War II. And at one point, there was a, a note pinned to an article, and it said, this professor will no longer be writing to us from London. His house was bombed in the Blitz, and therefore he'll be reporting to us from Oxford. Oh. So that was one of the you know, gut-check moments. Mm -hmm. But the other one was that there was a letter from the CEA to the Secretary of War complaining that because of shortages, academic salaries had, had sort of uh, bottomed out. And I thought to myself, really? 
really a bunch of academics are whining about salaries in right. 1942. That was just a, that was a, a real ivory tower moment where you know, come down to the real world. That sort of upset me a little bit, but it, it reminded me of when you asked this last question. That I think that's what happens. Sometimes academics are perceived of as removed from the realities of the world. So complaining about your salary while young men are going off to war just was bad form. Right. Yeah. So that that was you know that was a moment that made me a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, but there were plenty of other good moments that that assuaged that guilt. But what I but but in terms of what's happening now. One of the things I love about the organization and the journal, and of course I'm biased, it's diverse. It, it's a conference that welcomes voices across disciplines, across periods, you know, uh, uh, across authors. It's not specialized. And so it's always an adventure when you go to the conference and hopefully when you open the pages of the journal that there will be something for everybody, but also something you might not have expected that you find worth reading and engaging with. So that really matters to me. I like that when I go to the conference, I can go from a paper on Faulkner to one on Milton to one on Edith Wharton to one on how to be a better teacher of writing. And that's not very typical in a lot of journals or a lot of conferences. So we really maintain that sort of small C Catholic look at the profession. Right. And that's what appeals to me. And that's what we try to capture on the pages of the journal. Um, so yeah, MLA does that too. MLA has got a whole broad set of things. But as I said, one of the ways CEA is different is emphasizing usable scholarship. That was a term one of the editors used in the past, the idea of usable scholarship. Mm -hmm. And so we're always looking when we get articles to say, is this going to be useful to somebody or is it just esoteric? One other thing is that there was a commitment made by the editorial staff, I can't remember which issue it was because they run in my head, but that they were always going to seek to publish the work of a graduate student, incorporating the voices of graduate students. And CEA has always been a safe place. I started going there as a graduate student. Many of my colleagues went there as graduate students. So this idea that it was a safe spot to present your ideas and get usable feedback on how you can improve them. and the journal did that for a long time, and we got away with it. So that's one of the things that this experience has, has done for me. I plan to solicit graduate student essays more vigorously. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping to publish, given that we just did 80 years of what was the scholarly growth of the organization, I'm hoping to publish a special issue on what the next, the next generation of, of young academics looks like by gathering essays by of of graduate students who show exceptional potential. So in a sense, that's how this experience is sort of filtered in. Right. But the CEA really fills this void of a, of a safe place to test your ideas, a safe place to, to try out something, and a safe place to send out your first essay and know it's not going to get eviscerated. <laughs> right. So what advice then do you have for those folks, those younger scholars who, like you, could start a long history with the journal when, uh, with their first paper? You know, and I, I'm so glad that you asked that because it's actually not my advice. It's advice from one of the predecessors, um, and I actually chose to include her essay. It was sort of an editorial in the, the issue because her advice is pay attention to your audience. And that's the advice I give to the graduate students with whom I work, whether they're master's or doctoral students, that you're writing to someone and that you want to make your ideas clear. You want the reader to somehow or other 
think or feel or act differently based on what you are saying to them. I mean, that should be our aim and our scholarship. So it's not about impressing readers with fancy language or confounding them with some kind of convoluted argument or theoretical posturing. It's this clarity. You have something to say, then talk to us. And the best essays that we publish start that way. You know, they start with this idea that you've Maybe you've gone to the conference and you've given the paper, so you've given it to a live audience and you've gotten a read of who's getting what and who's not getting what, and then you go back and you tweak it a little bit. Every paper that I've ever written and published and, and chapters of books and, and things that became books started at the CEA because it was a safe place to test my ideas and then rework them. And to me, that's my advice is try it someplace. Find this comfortable, collegial conference, whether it's ours or another one in your discipline, and go there and become a member and get involved so that organizations can continue to thrive. Um, I was taken to CEA by John Shawcross, who in his prime was one of the top Miltonists and Dunn people and, and Renaissance scholars and, and you know, rubbed elbows with Stanley Fish and folks like that. And I'm an Americanist, but he still took me under my under his wing along with a number of my colleagues from graduate school. And those colleagues still come to CEA, and they were the president, and they sit on the board, and they became people who framed the organization in an image that they valued. And I think sometimes we get so bogged down in, in trying to publish or trying to impress that we forget that it's the collegiality where we where our ideas expand that is sometimes missing. And whether it's an organization like CEA or a journal like The Critic that asks you to step out of your comfort zone and read about ideas that might not be in your particular area or on a subject that you're looking to master. I think that's part of what makes us better teachers. And that's the mission of the CEA and The Critic, right? Usable right. scholarship that's going to make you a better teacher. That's what we do. Well, that's great. A fantastic way to end. I really appreciate you taking the time, Jerry. We're going to share this with everyone and uh, hope that uh, all the folks enjoy the special issue. Great. Thank you so much, Brian. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you for listening to this Johns Hopkins University Press podcast. Please visit press.jhu.edu slash journals for more information.